Um, we're in a series for Lent on how we uh, make meaning of the life, death uh, in particular, and the rising of Jesus. So Emily began this, I think it was the best sermon I ever heard last Sunday, and I'm saying that in all um, sobriety. Um, she began by saying that Jesus is part of like God's project to unmask the largely unconscious scapegoat mechanism that plagues humanity, that, that we are highly imitative as a species and more than any other mammal or primate. And we don't just do amazing things like uh, language acquisition simply through imitation, but we also imitate internal states like desire. Like we can kind of tell, no matter what someone's social skills are toward us, we can kind of know how they regard us. There's something about their internal desire that, that we're able to, to read and we mirror off it. And we often want what others want because they want it. And we're not even aware that we want it because they want it. That's what the advertising industry counts on. And this tendency to highly imitative desire intensifies our rivalries, as you could imagine, and it fuels the excess of violence in the human species. So humans long relied on a mechanism that we carry out in ignorance to contain our escalating conflicts. I'm just doing a quick recap for you here. As tensions rise in any human community, they can be resolved in a weird way. Someone accuses a vulnerable person or a subgroup and the accusation spread almost unconsciously by this process of mirroring, of imitation, until there's like a coalescing majority that mistreats or expels the demonized person or group and then a temporary peace comes over the group that seems like almost miraculous until the cycle has to repeat. So normally, uh, what we now call scapegoats are silenced. Their stories are told by the mobs that expelled them, and naturally those stories are self-serving to the majority. They portray the, what we would call the scapegoat as deserving their fate. But in the Bible, the opposite seems to be often happening. Often in the Bible, we have stories of mistreated or more marginalized people who are understood by the narrator of the story to be innocent, and the crowd is guilty. And it's actually through stories like this that we understand such a thing as scapegoating uh, today, that it happens. So Jesus died as a classic scapegoat. He was part of unveiling this mechanism. But God vindicated him after death by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is not silenced any longer. He regains his voice in the resurrection. And he calls us with that voice to like abandon our scapegoating ways. And he becomes the representative of all the scapegoated people of all time. So today we're going to look at how this plays out in the opening chapter of the book of Exodus. Uh, the movie Prince of Egypt is like the best overview and entertaining way of the book of Exodus. We're looking at the first chapter of the book of Exodus. It was our reading today. And it's a super important book, Exodus is, in the African-American church. Um, in a way that it, it absolutely isn't in um, European-American Christianity. And I, I think you'll see why. So it's a super important um, book and, and this opening chapter for, I'd say for Jesus followers in the United States in particular. 
So the evil that we have really not understood or confronted, like our national original sin, would be white supremacy. I mean, this is what produced scapegoating at scale, you know, the uh, wiping out of the native peoples, the, the suffering of slaves, which continues to this day in their descendants in, in various ways, that the evil did not end with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, white supremacy, as we're reading in James Cone book in the lynching era, um, thousands of black men were strung up by white mobs to terrorize the entire population of black people. So, you know, Birth of a Nation, this movie, was wildly popular, I think, in like 1930, and it totally romanticized the Ku Klux Klan. It depicted lynching as justified. It was shown in Woodrow <coughs> Wilson's White House to enthusiastic acclaim. White supremacy fueled the Jim Crow era, legally enforced discrimination, continues to threaten people of color in myriad ways today. So this is an especially important um, chapter in the Bible for us to engage because it really reveals the roots of the phenomenon that led to slavery. I'm reading starting in the, I'm reading in the Robert Alter translation. I love this. Um, and Joseph died and all his brothers with him, and all that generation. I'll explain what this is about when we're done. And the sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very vast, and the land was filled with them. It's an echo of the sixth day of creation when all the mammals and the land-based creatures are swarming and multiplying humans among them. And a new king arose over Egypt, who knew not Joseph. Oh, that's the key verse. And a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And now I want you to imagine a process that may have taken years to unfold that just didn't happen overnight. And this new king said to his people, look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply, and then, should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. And they set over them forced labor foremen, so as to abuse them with their burdens. And they built store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses. And as they abused him, so did they multiply, and so did they spread the people. And they came to loathe the Israelites. And the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they performed. So Exodus, the book of Exodus that we're reading from, is a sequel to the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. Remember, the king didn't remember, didn't know Joseph who arose. Joseph, in the end of the book of Genesis, he's probably the main figure, absolutely, in the book of Genesis. It all leads to the Joseph story, the longest narrative, I believe, in the entire Bible a scapegoat 
is Joseph, but one who's vindicated by God and thus became the savior of his own people, the people of Israel, by providing a home for them in Egypt when the land of Israel was hit by a famine. So by the end of Genesis, which is right before Exodus, the sons of Israel and their father, Jacob, who becomes Israel, have moved to Egypt. They're fleeing famine in the land of Canaan. And Egypt, to their credit, welcomes them with open arms and the people prosper in Egypt. But then Exodus chapter 1 opens with this ominous verse. A new king rose to power in Egypt, a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So Joseph, the man who was scapegoated by his own brothers in the land of Canaan, he was sold to Egyptian slave traders. He came into Egypt as a slave. He rose to prominence and became like the right-hand man of Pharaoh's chief of staff named Potiphar. But then he was scapegoated again by Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him of rape. And this should resonate if we've been reading James Cone, how thousands of black men were lynched. Many were falsely accused of raping white women. So this Joseph, who sets a pattern that is fulfilled in the life and the death and the rising of Jesus century later, he was someone vindicated by God, raised up to a position of favor. And as a result, Joseph provided refuge for his brothers in Egypt. He literally saved Israel, in a sense. Egypt, through Joseph's um, being vindicated by God and obviously being blessed by God, Egypt became an immigrant-friendly nation because Pharaoh and the Egyptians knew that, man, God is with this guy. It was just so obvious. So Exodus 1, this period, is when Israel is just beginning to coalesce as like a distinct people group, as a distinct um, national identity, an identifiable group. Now, have you ever wondered how three terms, Israelites, Jews, and Hebrews, are related like sometimes one term is used and sometimes another term is used and are they all synonymous? Do they mean the same thing? Or do, what's going on with those three terms? Well, the people of Israel refers to the descendants of the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And most of these tribes at a certain period in history were wiped out. They, they lost their distinct identity um, at, through war or through exile. So no one could tell if they were part of that tribe or not. Their DNA just kind of went into the general, general pool. <laughs> Leaving one tribe, Judah, and then a much smaller tribe, Benjamin, which was kind of folded into Judah. And this was the state of Israel at the time of Jesus. So the term Jews became commonplace. Judah, Judahites. Um, that's the term the Jewish people uses today. But the earliest term is Hebrews. And this is a group 
that's not identified by ethnicity so much as by misfortune. And in the ancient literature, this term Hebrews comes up over and over. We see this term in Exodus a little bit later in the chapter I read when he's talking about uh, the birth of Moses and the Hebrew midwives and the Hebrew women and the Hebrew women. All of a sudden Hebrew, Hebrew is the term. Now Hebrew is a term that goes way back in history. The word is hyperu. It's also uh, another pronunciation is hyperu. And a scholar who wrote a book, Bitter Lives, Israel in and out of Egypt, Carol Redmont, um, describes this, the Hebrews, the Hebiru, as a loosely defined inferior social class composed of shifting population elements without secure ties to settled communities. They are referred to in the literature as outlaws, mercenaries, and slaves often. The background is that the Fertile Crescent, where all this stuff is happening, uh, where all this is taking place, it's in a constant state of turmoil and shifting warfare. So you've got major empires from the north sweeping down. You've got empires from the south sweeping up. You've got empires from the east crossing the Fertile Crescent. It was like a, a land bottleneck. And then as these empires are rising and falling and sweeping over this area, there were also like um, localized power centers, like city-states scattered throughout the region. And these power centers, local ones, would either ally with the the uh, empire sweeping down, or they would resist the empire sweeping down, and the people caught in the middle of all that would become displaced people, people like without a country. Some would become mercenaries, which means they would like sell themselves to be fighters for one power or another. Some were considered outlaws, meaning because they were like literally outside the law or the protection of the law. Illegal aliens is kind of our phrase. Um, generally harassed, oppressed, displaced people, Hebrews, Hebrews, Hebrews. So the God of the Bible is first. The God of this people, the Hebrews. The God of the displaced, the immigrant, the marginalized, the unlucky, the outside the protection of the law people. And we, we have places we can connect with this in our, well, in our room. You know, our, our gay members um, live outside the protection of the law in Michigan. Um, it's still legal to fire someone for being gay in the state of Michigan. So if you're gay, you're kind of living outside of a protection of the law that is afforded to straight people, people of color, live outside the protection of the law in as much as they often don't get fair treatment under the law. So, you know, white defendants get lighter sentences, they get better outcomes, even though the rate of crime is no different by race. And here's the the forest for the trees in the Bible. We align with God by aligning with the people that God aligns with. Like this is the message that is stamped on every page of the entire Bible. And maybe because of that, it becomes like the forest that we don't see for the, for the trees. So these Egyptians, they knew Joseph and they made a place for the displaced Hebrews because of Joseph. And remember, um, the Israelites came to Egypt as an immigration wave, right? 
So they were fleeing famine in, in, um, in Canaan. We have a, a climate scientist in our church, Mike. And, you know, as the climate um, change advances, this is from the Department of Defense and the intelligence community reports, we're going to be seeing more of these immigration waves across the world, and it's anticipated to be a very destabilizing influence in the global geopolitical sphere, and it already is, is happening in Africa and many other places. Well, the Israelites were one of those immigration ways into Egypt, and they prospered in Egypt. But then Egypt turns on its immigrant population. Exodus 1 is describing a process that, that may have taken actually years to unfold. And it starts with a leader who doesn't know Joseph. It's, it's a leader who has forgotten that, oh, remember that guy Joseph who was, you know, everyone thought that he was, he was a slave, but then he would, God just kind of raised him up, and then the, he came under false accusation by the chief of staff's wife, and he was in prison, and then again, God raised him up because Pharaoh had a dream, and Joseph was the guy who could interpret the dream. God was with Joseph. They forgot about Joseph, this leader, this new leader who came after Joseph had died and the people who knew him died. So this leader sparks fear of this immigrant population by accusing them. And then the accusations and the fear spread by that imitative process that happens like unconsciously. And the immigrant population enters then a period of escalating burden and threat. This is everything being described in Exodus 1. So what was the rap against the Hebrews, the displaced people, fueled by this leader who didn't know Joseph? I mean, it is so familiar. If you can just kind of keep that text that I read in mind, and I'll try to like translate it into a more like contemporary sort of uh, themes. It'd be like, Wow, they're, they're multiplying like rabbits. Soon they're going to overwhelm us. Our, being, our borders are being overrun by criminals. It's, it's an invasion. We're going to lose our culture. There will be bilingual road signs and taco trucks on every corner. These people could join future enemies to harm us. We are all in danger. This, this is almost precisely what was going on in Exodus 1. Now, none of this is, is actually true at the time. None of it has actually happened. It's all fear. And it's so curious because it's fear from people who should be the least afraid because they have the most power, you know, but that also means they have the most to lose, right? Oh, my. So here's the thing. People trying to hold on to all the power, especially to protect uh, the power from being shared with particular large groups of people, they're not willing to share it. They must govern by fear. I mean, that's the only way to govern in that setup. So patriarchy, Caleb mentioned patriarchy, the rule of men, uh, white supremacy. Uh, these always produce fear-based forms of leadership. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, this is why all-male leadership 
in a church is actually dangerous, probably in different ways for everybody, because it, it can only be fear-based at root. You have to keep the power from like half the population that just puts you automatically in a posture of defensive, protective fear. So it all starts with a leader who doesn't know Joseph. What does it mean for us in 2019 to know Joseph? What would it mean for us to know Joseph? Be the kind of people who would remember how God worked through Moses and the whole meaning of the Joseph story, you know, fulfilled centuries later in Jesus. What would it mean for us to know Joseph? Well, I'm going to give you two applications here. First of all, like we would have to resist when leaders arise who don't know Joseph, <laughs> who don't know that God is on the side of the Habirus <laughs> and who, you know, um, stoke fear toward immigrant populations. Like as soon as we saw that dynamic, we'd say, okay, been here, done that, seen this in our sacred text. We would have to resist it. Because we would know that this eventually would lead to, you know, mistreatment, abuse, horrible things. And we also know, this, and this is the insight of Rene Girard that Emily brought out, um, that contagion like this in a community spreads by this unconscious power of imitation. Um, like, you know, nothing spreads faster through a herd of animals than fear. So, if you will, picture with me that National Geographic special, no doubt, that you have watched, and maybe you were forced to when you were a kid, because it was good for you, it was like a nature thing, you couldn't watch the cartoons, but you could watch the National Geographic special, because it was educational. Picture, if you will, the herd of impala, right? All there is like thousands of impala, all closely packed together in a herd, and then there's the African, you know, kind of safari grassland area, and the, cap the, the camera captures a lion sleeking through the grass. The, you know, the, the cameraman sees it. The herd animals, the impalas don't see it. And then at the very edge of the herd, the very edge closest to the lion, the impalas in that little region, they notice, they notice the lion. And then it's like fear just spreads through the entire herd like an electric current. I mean, it's that fast. And you can see why we would, you know, evolve to be like that because we, that would protect herd animals from dangers. We wouldn't all have to wait until the lion was at our throat, right? So it's a very powerful dynamic, and we are, we are animals like that. And so fear spreads like an electric current through humans, and, and, and we have to resist the fear. You know, what did Jesus say to the disciples more than anything? This is particularly, interestingly, after he was raised from the dead. Don't be afraid. Jesus, over and over and over, don't be afraid. Standard greeting after the resurrection. They're huddled in fear in a room. Jesus comes through the door, <laughs> literally through the door, <laughs> and says, don't be afraid. So, 
you know, if we have family, if we have friends, if we have co-workers, and we notice that they're like plugging into this fear current, we have to speak up. Um, I'm not talking about like engaging in argument or even less trying to like, like win an argument. I'm recommending something else, a simple act of what's called self-defining. And it's so much easier to pull off than engaging in argument and especially trying to win one. And my example, if I'm, I'm going to brag a little bit on my stepdaughter, Oceanus. Oceanus, 20 years old. She goes to Michigan State University. And uh, she's sitting over there. She gave me this permission. I think she kind of likes it when I tell these stories. So, um, Ocean is at Nick's um, EMU orientation. Nick is her boyfriend over there. You can uh, meet them both. They'll be signing autographs later. Um, and, you know, they separate the family from the, the students. And, and Ocean is like with the family members and mostly its parents. And behind her, she hears these parents spouting off like how dangerous immigrants are. Something needs to be done about brown people, the brown people invading. Her, her, her boyfriend is, is Hispanic, um, ethnically. And she turns around and she says, after hearing this, like over and over, like behind her, annoyingly, she described them as white. You know, what a big surprise. Um, <laughs> and she says, what about me? And, and they say, well, you're white. You're fine. And she's like, I'm not white. I was born in China. And then they changed the topic. They just, they just, she, she just did a simple act of self-defining. She didn't get into a debate. She just said, this is who I am. What about me? And it interrupted the circuit. Simple acts of self-defining can be so powerful. Um, you know, so just resolve. Um, the next time we encounter an anti-immigrant fear current among our family or our friends or co-workers or at the barber shop, just to make a simple act of self-defining. I'm not afraid of immigrants. I don't see an invasion. Simple act of self-defining. Now, if you're inclined to faith witness, I am inclined to faith witness, I might add, the God I serve is the God of displaced persons. When we welcome them, like Joseph and the Egyptians did, we are welcoming God. That's how I see it. But all you need is just the basic I'm not afraid of immigrants. I don't see an invasion. Even a few people saying that in a, in a crowd can, can break a circuit or slow down the transmission of the fear. So that's the first application. And the second is like unto it. Um, but it's related to um, white supremacy. So this, this is, I think... I'm going to suggest something I think actually a number of us, not all of us certainly, could do at a personal level um, to right the lingering wrong, the lingering economic wrong of slavery. It's a very specific action. I'm not going to reveal it yet. Um, but you might know immediately if it's something you're, you're drawn to because you would respond like, wow, what a great idea. I could do that. So those are like the only people I'm speaking to. I'm looking for that reaction. Wow, what a great idea. I could do that. So as Americans, we have to reckon with the ongoing economic injustice of slavery and its aftermath. We just, we just tend not to do that. Um, you know, what is slavery? Putting people to work and not paying them. 
Um, and then keeping the wealth that they generate, generate and not sharing with them. So that's Pharaoh's store cities at Pithom and Ramses. He had to create whole cities that were designed to store the wealth that was generated by the slave labor. In, in a book, the, the half of it has not been told by a historian named Edward Baptist, reports that of the wealth that was generated in America in 1860, half of it was generated by slave labor. And of course, that wealth created other wealth that continues to flow almost exclusively down racial lines to white people. So the economic injustice of slavery has never been addressed in America. What could like individuals, some of us do? Well, you know, like those of us who have benefited from the extra money available to white people through inheritance could include a descent of a descendant of slaves in our will. So when we die, all the wealth doesn't go to our family only. Part of it goes to the descendants of slaves whose labor filled the white storehouses available to, owned by white people. And that wouldn't be like an act of charity. That would just be like an act of, uh, of decency. You could even characterize it, well, that's like the least we could do. So if you have the response to that, like, oh, I never thought of that. I could see myself doing that. I just pay attention to that, to that thought for a moment. And the, the sermon is thankfully over. Um, and I want to draw your attention to the um, Lenten cards. These are our Lenten intention cards. You have a white card on her sheet. And I myself personally put um, big pens, I think, on every other seat. So you might have to share a pen with a neighbor if you don't have a pen. But there's a there's a purpose for these cards. We're using them throughout Lent. And one purpose is you can just um, restate your Lenten intention. If you're focused on some one particular thing in Lent that you want to do, um, you know, pray 10 minutes a day, meditate, any, any number of things. Uh, someone, someone's intention was to, um, every morning at work, give a warm hello to all of my coworkers. I thought, well, that would make the world a better place. You know? So whatever your Lenten intention is, you could restate it on this card, and that helps, you helps your brain to organize and enact it. I have too many Lenten intentions, so I'm going to use the card. I, I didn't abide by my own advice. I'd like, and I'm like, I'm too scattered. I need to drop a few of them and just focus on And I'm going to write what I'm focusing on on the card. And then um, you might on those two applications that I meant, if, uh, if you had, oh, I could do that, I could just resolve to um, do a simple self-defining thing next time I'm in touch with a situation like that um, and to say, I'm not afraid, uh, you could write that down. Or you, if you heard the suggestion about putting a descendant of slaves in your, in your will and you're like a young guy and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to have a lot of money. Well, you might. And I know lots of people who decided like in their early 20s, I want to adopt a child someday. And then, you know, 10, 15 years go on and they end up doing that, adopting a child. So the desires are important to pay attention to and just writing that down as a way of just noting a desire in your heart. The most powerful things that we do are things that would come out of uh, genuine desires that we have, not that some pastor made some recommendation. So 
you can uh, fill out your cards as you wish to, and then we'll, we'll come up and we'll place those cards in the, in the uh, little basket up here as our bringing our intentions to God thing. And I'm going to end with a quiet reflection. Um, take a few minutes at the end of the sermon to um, do a quiet reflection. I'm going to offer a little prayer exercise that uses the imagination. The first thing I want to do, it'll take me a minute to set this up for you, is to pick one of the three statements that most appeals to you and don't overthink it. Just pick the one that most appeals to you. The first one is, don't be afraid I am with you. Second one is, don't be afraid I can help you. And the third one is, don't be afraid you'll be fine. Like if you heard God say that, for example. I'll say those again. You can pick the one that, you're, that most appeals to you. Just hold on to it. Don't be afraid I am with you. Don't be afraid I can help you. Don't be afraid, you'll be fine. Okay, grab hold of that. And then there's an imaginary exercise that deals with the fact that a lot of the fear that we experience is caught from others in subtle ways. Fear is something that goes through populations. It's not just like resident inside of us, but it's, we're part of a network of fear and it passes through us. So I just invite you in this imagination to think about fear operating in that way through you. So you can go ahead and close your eyes and just picture yourself in an easy chair that has one little odd feature. It plugs in to a, to a, to a um, outlet. So go ahead and just picture yourself and maybe it's an easy chair that you like that's near a wall. Uh, you're sitting in that chair and the chair at the bottom has got an electric cord and it's plugged into a wall outlet. And as you're sitting there, it's just imagining this, as you're sitting there, you're noticing just little jolts of electricity coming through the chair. And it's, it's not dangerous, but it's just kind of unpleasant. So you're sitting in the chair, you're noticing little jolts of electricity and now you're like looking around the chair as you're still sitting in it and you notice that plug and it's plugged into that outlet and then you say oh I'll unplug my chair and so now just take a moment in your imagination get out of the chair go to the circuit and unplug the chair and now you're sitting back in the chair and you're unplugged from all that energy flowing through the grid, so to speak. And now, just for a minute, take that phrase that your heart was drawn to, either don't be afraid I am with you or don't be afraid I can help you or don't be afraid you'll be fine. And just... Repeat that over and over. Return your focus to that phrase as your mind wanders.
don't be afraid, I am with you. Don't be afraid, I can help you. Don't be afraid, you'll be fine.